Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten. If this is your very first episode of the show, then a quick primer. It is myself and my co-host, Matt Donato, and a great guest every week. We talk about horror films, usually from the last 20 years, that have five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. We give ourselves a really difficult uh, driving force, but it's actually worked out pretty well for now. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. But yeah, you're here to talk about horror. You're here to listen to our guests talk about the relationship to horror. And I couldn't do this without my friend, my co-host, my fellow Matt, Matt Donato. How you doing, buddy? Doing okay, Matt Monagle. I love you too. I'm just going to come out and say I, I, didn't, say I, I didn't say I didn't say I love you. I said I did. Friend, so I put that on the table and now that's okay. on you. Well, now it's awkward because I didn't say it back. Yep. Uh, so we're on a bit of a roll right now, I think. Um, we've actually had within the last couple, last five episodes or so, we've, we've had a really fo- good focus on Japanese cinema and Japanese genre cinema in particular. And this week is going to be no different. We're going to bring in a guest who's going to talk about it. But before we let them talk about themselves, we have to give them a really awesome introduction, which Donato is going to do right now. Wow, just putting me on the spot immediately, but uh, I'm going to try my best here. And yes, I'm very excited to talk to, number one, a friend from New York who I have not been able to see since I moved to L.A. Uh, You know them as a filmmaker for movies such as We Are Still Here and Mohawk. You also might know them as a publicist extraordinaire for the weird and the wild of the genre Mm -hmm. films. You also might listen to his podcast, This Is Not A Story About, or play his trivia on Fridays. And I'm getting to this just to say, we get to talk to Mr. Ted. Now, tell me if I'm pronouncing this right. Gioga Hagen? Oh, my God. How, <laughs> how many years have we known each other? <laughs> Mr. Ted Gagan. That is how you pronounce it. And we are very happy to have you here today. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. So, Ted, if I'm under- if, if I'm followed you on Twitter probably for about two years now, and I've had the opportunity. It is it is writer, director, historian, quiz master, publicist. Are there any other hyphens in there over the last few years that I've missed? Uh, I, I, I'm sure there are. I, I can't even begin to think of all the hats that I have worn. But uh, in this uh, in this industry, I feel like uh, the more hats you wear, the safer you are. That's probably a good approach to have. Um, you know, everybody, a lot of people are familiar with your work. Um, if you're in the industry, you've worked with you as a publicist, Donato and I both have. Uh, if you're outside of the industry, they're familiar with your films. I think you're actually, congratulations, you're the first filmmaker we've had on the show. So that is your distinction for the rest of this going forward. Well, thank you. But I want to know, I kind of want to know the early days because we always talk to our guests about that, like that the first couple of films they watched, you know, either as a, a child or as a teenager when the horror genre really took root. What were those early memories for you with horror? So I, uh, I actually didn't really grow up with horror in my, in my early youth. Um, the first movie I ever saw in the movie theater, I was three months old. Um, it was October 1979, and my dad took me to go see Alien. Um, I, and um, the only reason he did that was because he couldn't find a babysitter. And the film was still selling out months and months and months after it had opened. And my father was a quadriplegic, so he was able to just put his newborn baby in his wheelchair lap and wheel me right into the cinema to watch Alien. I obviously don't remember it at three months old, but um, I, I always kind of feel like that that gross miscalculation of his planted some sort of seed in my brain that uh, kept me loving this stuff forever. But uh, growing up, you know, like in the 80s in particular, I wasn't, I wasn't a horror kid. Like it really bothered me a lot. Um, it wasn't until I was in high school in the early nineties, um, that I really 
started falling in love with it. Um, my first introduction to it was through one of my dearest friends growing up, who was always the horror kid. Um, he he would always tell me about these terrifying movies that he was watching, and it would really, really bother me. And one night he came to my house for a sleepover and had brought along uh, Friday the 13th, the final chapter. And the way he pitched it to me was he was like, it's got Corey Feldman in it. You like Corey Feldman. And I was like, oh, I do like Corey Feldman. All right, I'll watch it. And every single time there was a kill in the movie, he would pause it and say, okay, there's about to be a kill. Like as if to have like <laughs> some sort of like warning. And as we were watching it, like he didn't realize it, but he was planting like, you know, or rather like re-germinating these seeds of like love for genre stuff. And by the time it was over, I was like, I was so excited to learn more about Savini and learn more about like, like Jason and all this sort of stuff. I, I was just, it blew my mind how much fun it was and how it wasn't this terrifying, troubling thing. It was actually something that like sparked a lot of creative interest in me. And I was, I was like, wow, you know, I'd love to watch more of those. And he was, he was like, well, good news, motherfucker, and brought out uh, Friday the 13th, part five and six. So, um, so yes, my, my introduction to horror was the early 90s with the, the Tommy Jarvis trilogy of the Friday the 13th movies. And after that, never looked back. Yeah, this yeah, is like inspiring for me to hear, especially because I, I had the same trajectory in a way. Um, and I, I didn't, I wasn't the horror guy. I've said this a bunch of times in the podcast, but I wasn't the horror guy growing up. I was kind of the same way. Things scared me and I was very anxious. And to me, horror was like, yep, no, no zone. Don't want to get involved in that. So uh, to hear that someone can dive so deep into the genre and find that love, you know, in the same way that I'm doing right now. And if maybe someday I can be on your level of like genre um, informational just digestion, it would be fantastic for me. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I equate to how much I know about all of this is the fact that the internet wasn't around back then. Like, it's incredible that we have access to everything right now, but it also kind of keeps new horror fans from learning the information because it's so easy to look it up, you know, whereas growing up as a kid, I would go out to the bookstores and buy book after book after book of horror stuff and just consume it like like rabidly consume it and then you know my friends would say hey what's the name of that movie with blah 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 and i'd go oh that's sorority babes in the slime ball ballorama and now it's so easy to just look that information up that i feel like you know a lot of the new horror fans they're not retaining it uh, and i i would love to see some of that come back i mean we we see that a lot in in the horror trivia that i run is a lot of the older fans, they have that retention, um, you know, because they grew up memorizing this stuff because they wanted to be the horror geek in their small town like I did. Um, and now nowadays, the, the kids these days, it, it's, it's very easy and they are in an incredible, incredible position to be able to consume every single film that I had to hunt down for years and years and years to see. but. It's so great when I hear about young horror fans who are actually like learning about it. People who are reading like Ar Argento biographies or reading like old Chaz Ballin stuff about Fulci or, you know, like any of that stuff. It's so dope when people like really get behind it and want to learn as opposed to just want to consume.
Yeah, we we talk a lot on the show because it's kind of, you know, a lot of the guests we have are sort of in the same general age range where the video store was a big part of their kind of growth as horror fans. And, you know, we always talk about the video store experience, but I feel like the one thing we don't often talk about is that thing right before where you ended up with like a video hound book or Roger Ebert's guide to the movie or Leonard Maltin's guide to the movies. And you're just like flipping through and looking at these one line synopses. And one of them is like brain slugs kill women in the Amazon or something. You're like, done. Next time I go to the video store, I have to find that. For me, that was a big part of it when I started to realize that I liked horror is just like flipping through a video hound book and waiting to see like their little score system of what the most graphic stuff was and being like, is that something I feel like I can do right now? Yeah. <laughs> I, it, you know, it's, it's interesting given that last night shutter, like a streaming service, essentially a TV station showed cannibal Holocaust uncut. Like the fact that the fact that kids have, and I'm not saying this in any sort of deprecating way toward cannibal Holocaust, but the fact that kids have access to that sort of stuff so easily. Like I, I remember trying to track down Cannibal Holocaust for years because I had heard about its infamy. And the fact that now it's readily accessible with the click of a button is amazing. Like it, it's so incredible that people have this sort of access. But I do I do stand by the fact that it is it is wildly important to know about these movies, especially films like Cannibal Holocaust that are, that are the production of the film is troubling and there's a lot of genre that that's production is troubling. And, you know, in, in 2020 and hopefully beyond, you know, I, I think it's so important to address that stuff, talk about it. You can still appreciate the film, but you know, it, it is what it is, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the only way we're going to figure that out is by learning about it is by actually like focusing on it and learning the background you know it can't be this it can't be this immediate this is bad this is good you know that that we so often see the the horror genre is very complex you know it it deals with a lot of issues it deals with a lot of subtext and for me like some of some of my favorite horror films are movies that i thought were okay the first time i watched them and the more i learned about them the more i loved them well, let me let me ask you this then, Ted, because you know you're talking about kind of like the obsession that I think um, to horror fans of a certain age in particular, but sort of you know a lot of horror fans, there is that period as they're learning the stuff where they want to know all about it. You know, they want to consume a lot of it, and if they're good, they go back and look at the history, like you were talking about. But that doesn't always translate for a lot of horror fans. It doesn't translate into the desire to go out and make their own stuff or be involved in the production side of the industry. So. You have bridged those worlds. I mean, you're in the history world, you're in the the filmmaking world, and you've done that for a long time. When did you realize, when did you take all of this like obsession of yours and be like, wait, maybe I don't just have to be on this side of the screen appreciating it. Maybe I can get involved on the, the actual filmmaking part too. Well, I um I started writing screenplays the moment I started loving horror movies. Like like by the early nineties, I didn't have a computer. I was I was writing it on like loose leaf notebook paper at school you know i um i had found an ad i want to say it was an ad in a fangoria or a gore zone where you could purchase screenplays and i remember like sending the dollar for the catalog and and getting you know this big list of scripts and i i bought dennis paoli's script to reanimator which was a film that i i loved and still do love and i read it and i that was the first time I'd ever seen what a script looked like, like, I, like the formatting, like, like what gets capitalized, like 
everything. Like I, I had no idea how a script worked. And as soon as I read it, I had this like burning desire to write my own. And so I was, I was writing them, like I said, on le loose leaf paper, just because I was so excited about the prospect. And I, I pushed forward on that obsessively throughout most of the nineties. And by the time I got to college, I was, I, I had obsessed so hard over horror that I had this dream of writing this book um, that was going to be a, a body count guide to modern horror. And you could look up any movie and it would list out the character, the actor and how they died. And it would be the order in which they died throughout the film. And I was obsessed with this idea. And it was weird because Nowadays, it sounds like like sociopathic behavior, but I was treating it so like scholarly that my parents were like, whatever, he's like, he's writing, he's excited, like it, it doesn't seem to be an issue. And yeah, at that age, if you show any interest whatsoever, your parents are like, fuck it, fine, like you have something, we're done yeah. here. Yeah. And I, I started writing all this, uh, I started writing all these like ridiculous body counts out for hundreds and hundreds of movies. And I would obsessively like track down every movie I could find just to like do the body count. And in doing that, I started seeing these things where I'd be like, oh, wow, like I, I'm writing down this actor who died in this movie. And oh, wait, he was in some other movie. And then I'd look to figure out what that movie was. And I'd make the connections. And I started I started seeing these bridges. I started discovering who people like Tom Atkins was and like, you know, like folks like that who now might sound like like well of course Tom Atkins we all know who Atkins is but at that time I was just some kid lonely kid in mo rural Montana nobody knew who Tom Atkins was nobody knew who Romero was you know like I was the weird kid in town who knew all this stuff and writing that book which obviously never got published because it was a ridiculous concept um <laughs> um you know really helped me push that forward like the obsession and at one point while working on that obsession I was like you know what I want to have a section in the book on horror directors you've never heard of and I went through all the videos in my collection and I was like well nobody's ever heard of people like Wes Craven and John Carpenter so I was writing out biographies for them unaware of the fact that they, their lives had heavily been biographed by that point um but weirdly, one of the films or one of the directors that I decided I was going to write a biography for was a German director named Andreas Schnoss. And I had bought a VHS copy at a pawn shop of a movie called Violent Shit. And I was probably 13 years old when I bought it. And of course I bought it. It was called Violent Shit. Like, of course I had to buy that tape. I had to like, not only did I have to buy it, I had to buy it and then hide it from my mom. Like it was such an awesome thing. And I brought it home and I popped it in and it was like this shot on video, like $5,000 movie made by a kid in his backyard in Germany. It's, it's basically unwatchable. Um, but I was like, I was like, well, I'm writing about John Carpenter and Wes Craven. Obviously I have to write about Andreas Schnoss, completely unaware of the fact that these, these directors do not exist in the same realm of filmmaking. <laughs> and it was the early days of the internet. It would have been 1999. And I, I, I was about to say I Googled him, but I, I guess I asked Jeeves about him. Um, <laughs> and I, I was like, who is this Andreas Schnoss? And it brought up his personal website. And I was like, oh my God, I can write to him? 
So I wrote him an email and I just said, I'm some dumb kid in Montana writing a book about horror movies. And I'd love it if I could interview you. And within like two minutes, he wrote back and was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I've never been interviewed. Like, I, mm. yes, let's talk. So I wrote in, I, I wrote his biography, like a, a short little like two page, maybe one page biography. And he loved it so much that about six months later, he contacted me and said, this is the, a really weird request, but I just got a million dollars to make a movie in English. I'm going to shoot it in Rome because that's going to be cheaper. Would you like to co-write the screenplay with my wife? And I was like, oh my God, yes. And um, six months after that, I was in Germany working on a screenplay. And three months after that, I was in Rome on the set of said movie. I was, I was 20 years old. And the movie was virtually unreleased. I think it was only released in Italy and the UK. It's called Demonium. Um, it is it is definitely a movie that exists. And um, and but the thing was, I I scored that credit before the digital revolution began, before everyone could have an IMDb credit. Um, and it actually helped a lot because I started having people reach out to me almost immediately asking if I'd write their little bargain bin horror movie. And um, by the time the digital revolution happened in, in the early aughts, I already had five or six screenplays under my belt and it put me just enough ahead of everyone else that I was able to continue to make a go of it. Um, I feel like had I been a few years later, I I would have struggled to have achieved anything that I've achieved. Not not to say that I haven't struggled, but I would have struggled a lot more. That's fucking that's fascinating. I I love I, that for a ridiculous story. <laughs> that's a fucking amazing story, man. I, I like how generally gobsmacked Monogle is right now. Like I can tell he's broken. <laughs> that my well, my career is thanks to a VHS tape of violent shit that I got at a pawn shop in Beaverton, uh, Washington in, uh, yeah, I guess it would have been 1993. But there's something so poetic about that at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm proud of it. I got to make a movie with the guy who made violent shit. As a matter of fact, I wrote three of his movies. <laughs> and where can we find them, Ted? <laughs> Um, nowhere. Um, <laughs> and and the biography that I wrote for him, um, you can uh, find it on his Wikipedia page because the book never got published. So I just took what I wrote for him and threw it up on Wikipedia. It, it's obviously over the years been like massively changed, but that was where uh, that was where Andreas Schnoss's biography ended up was on Wikipedia. Um, the, the film I wrote from Demonium, um, I don't think it, it, I know it's never been released in North America. I, I know there are discs available of it. Um, the second film I wrote for him, Nikos the Impaler, um, was released on DVD in the U.S. Uh, but I think it's, I think it's streaming, you, not, not legally, but at this point, go for it. And um, the third film I wrote for him is called Don't Wake the Dead, and it is about a group of schoolgirls who fight off a group of Templar knights and a group of zombie Nazis with the help of a descendant of Abraham Van Helsing, who is using the flying guillotine to kill them. 
Yeah, that all tracks. That all that, that all makes, yeah. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, that's what happens when you get a silly filmmaker hiring a twenty-one-year-old to write a script. Man, I just I'm I, I need a moment because Donato knows like my favorite my favorite thing about the horror genre, my favorite thing as a film critic is is history and not just history but historiography, the way that we write our histories and the way that they change and evolve over time. So just the number of different components of that story that cross cut so many different important eras of horror, as well as your own personal journey. I'm just like, I'm just like, I mean, I need to go smoke a cigarette or something and sit down for a bit. Cause that is the greatest origin story of contemporary horror that I've heard in a long time. Well, and you know, after, after I made all those films, you know, I, I opened my own production company called starving Kappa pictures and I made four films under that banner and these were just bargain bin films. I always refer to them as like the Walmart dive films, you know, like that giant bin at Walmart that you swim through to find the disc that says eight films for $1. Like I, I made a lot of those movies and I, I'm very proud of them. I, I, I think they were all a lot of fun and they came out at a time in which you and your friends could get together and make a $5,000, $8,000 movie and actually turn a profit on it. Like physical media was still a thing. You you could actually turn a profit on these things. And I, I was making those for a while. This was all while I lived in rural Montana. Um, and then I, I ended up moving to New York. Um, I guess it was 12 or 13 years ago. But I didn't know the first thing about how to get ahead in New York City. Like I was I was a very small fish in a really big pond. And I just started asking people, I was like, how do you get involved in this industry? What's like an entry level job for a a 30 year old man? And several people were like, well, your movies always got really good PR. Did you do your own PR? And I was like, well, yeah, you can hire somebody to do your PR. That's ridiculous. Why, why would you spend good money on someone when you can just email the horror websites to get them to review your movie? And Within days, um, I was hired at Oscilloscope Laboratories um, as a publicist. So I worked, I worked for them um, and for Adam Yauch uh, for uh, two years. Uh, loved it. Um, then I got uh, headhunted by a PR firm that I worked at for about a year. Um, did not care for that experience. Um, and I realized that while I'm good at PR, I am not a traditional publicist. Um, I, I actually as somebody who's been a filmmaker, like I I don't like the idea of a publicist taking ownership of a film. Um, Movies are made with blood and sweat and tears and people mortgage their homes and they lose their families and they lose their livelihoods over making a movie. Anytime I hear a publicist say, well, my movie that I'm working on, I'm like, no, 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 that is not your movie. It is absolutely not your movie. You, you are lucky to have been hired to help these hardworking filmmakers get the word out about this thing that they put their heart and soul into. And as soon as I started leading with that, filmmakers came out of the woodwork to work with me um, because they understood that I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to bullshit them, nor was I going to bullshit the press. Like I, I traditionally only work on films that, I really like. I mean, there are a few exceptions which will go unnamed, Donato. Um, <laughs> I was like, should I chime in here or what do I do? <laughs> um, there are uh, very few exceptions. But for the most part, like I've, I've created a career as, as a publicist, as someone who reps good movies or movies that have heart or, or movies that hopefully have both. And um, I, I ended up becoming a publicist for Dark Sky Films. I worked on several of their movies 
And um, while working for them, um, uh, they found out that I had a script um, that I was trying to get made and I wanted to direct. And um, they took a chance on me and um, I ended up making We Are Still Here with them and, and Mohawk with them. Um, but those are those two movies never would have happened had I not decided to become a publicist after being a moderately successful writer and producer for, for nearly six or seven years, you know, um, so it's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of weird steps in how I came to be. And I, I'm continually telling people, they're like, well, what's your trick? I'm like, my trick is I've done this for 20 years. Demonium was 20 years ago and I still have a day job. Like I, I still am not a wealthy man. I still ride the subway and right now in the midst of the coronavirus, I am completely wildly unemployed. And I have no shame in that. I feel like at the end of the day, like more filmmakers should speak up about how hard this is and how this journey is not, it's not an easy one. There is no golden ticket. And like, you know what? It, it, of course I'd love to direct a Marvel movie and buy a house and do all that stuff and never worry about money again but it's likely not going to happen. And you know what? That's cool too. I'm going to keep making movies and being poor until I'm a very, very old man. And you know what? Totally good with that outcome. Like as long as I get to be involved in this industry, it will keep me alive and I will do my best to keep it alive. Yeah. I think that's super refreshing because uh, one of the things that, you know, not to, not to equate our professional levels or anything like that, but one of the things that, people are always surprised to find out about me is the same exact fact. It's like, Matt, how do you do so much writing and keep yourself going and do what you do? And I'm like, I have a day job. I'm like, I don't even write during the day. Mostly like I'm doing things so I can pay my bills that allow me to go to festivals and write and do everything that I do. And it's a thing that like you just said, like some people almost like don't want to hear. They're like, wait, what do you mean? I'm like, yeah, no, this industry is hard. It's competitive and it takes a lot to get, even moderately ahead. I'm not even saying I'm ahead. I'm just saying to wherever, whatever level I have reached that is in the medium level of somewhat success, but you still need a day job, day job to do it. I think that's just the reality for a large majority. And it's very easy to glamorize the top tier, I guess I would say. It's very easy to look at the highest of the high and say like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. But like you said, the reality is a large majority are never going to have that. And again, you know what? I'm okay, number one, saying that. And I'm okay, like, saying that out loud. Like, I'm lucky. I am privileged. And the fact that I have a day job, like, doesn't take away anything from the other side of my passion career, I call it. Yeah. And and the fact that you may never direct a Marvel movie shouldn't stop you from making movies. I mean, fuck it. If, if, you're all, if your whole end game is that Marvel movie, you shouldn't be in this industry. You should be in this industry because you love it and it's passion and it's what keeps you alive. I mean, I tell people all the time, I'd be like, I literally would be dead if it wasn't for horror movies. They have been my best friend. They have been my confidant. They have been my obsession since I first fell in love with movies as a young teenager. And like, it's, I, I can't imagine a reality in which I'm not doing this. And that's where you have to come at all of this from. Like, bottom line. I mean, and you're, you're in the exact same boat that I am in. Like, you, when you say I don't want to equate what you've done to what I've done, 
Absolutely. Like you and I are both in 100% the same boat. We're just dudes who love stuff, who are working really hard to be a part of something that we care about. Like, and whether the mark we leave is a big mark or a little mark, like who cares? Like it's keeping us going, man. Like, and that's, that's the end game, especially these days. I mean, with the planets on fire, man, do what you love, you know, like make the world a better place. You know, I, I have to say this conversation, we're going to, we're going to pivot and talk about the movie now because it's a movie that deserves discussion. (laughs) We got to talk about it, but I will say this entire conversation really helped bring into focus. I think why Ted, you brought on the movie that you did um, and the ethos that you bring as a filmmaker and a publicist to it. So let's, let's use that. Um, Let's say fuck it. The world is burning and let's pivot into when we get back talking about today's movie, which of course is zombie ass toilet of the dead. So we will be right back with you. You know, now that Certified Forgotten is a website in addition to a podcast, it it really goes without saying that we wouldn't be able to do what we do without the support of our patrons. They help bring new, diverse, talented voices to CertifiedForgotten.com. And, you know, it is really, it's our privilege, I mean, conditionally, depending on what they're going to make us read, but it's our privilege to be able to have Donato read segments from them over the air during these breaks on our podcast. So, Donato, which two patrons are we highlighting this week? And what are they going to make you say? Today, we have two familiar names, both podcast guests of the past, one a two-time appearance, one just once. So, without further ado, the first message we have is from Miss Megan Navarro who has appeared on such episodes as High Moon and Burning Bright. Miss Navarro says, Going gentle on you for the Patreon on-air message, I just want to plug the CF Patreon, and specifically Monogle's Game Night, because Game Night is more fun with more opponents. Bwaha, ha ha ha. And number two, we have Miss Amelia E, who you all know from the Patchwork episode, obviously, because you've all listened to it and y'all love it. She is making me read on-air, and I quote, though it has taken some time and it is difficult to say, it's time that I, Matt Donato, admit that Perry Nemiroff is better at beer pong than I am. End quote. Which is a bold-faced lie, because if you've ever watched the Merry Hour live stream on Fridays, 4.30 PST, 7.30 EST, I'm on like a five-game win streak against Perry. So nice try, Amelia, but uh, no, no, no. Well, I want to apologize to Donato's sense of honor and righteousness, but I want to say thank you to both Amelia and Megan and to everybody else who's donated. We really, we joke, but we really appreciate it. And we we love that we, the little community that we're starting to build. So thank you all. Let's get back to the show. All right, we're back. We're here. We're going to talk about Zombie Ass, The Toilet of the Dead. So if you haven't heard of this movie, um, it is a 2011 film by Japanese filmmaker Noboru Oguchi. You might have seen uh, some of his other films or some of his other segments. He did a segment in the ABCs of Death most recently, one of his more recent uh, American films. He's also done stuff like Mutant Girl Squad and The Machine Girl. A little harder to get, but you probably have seen it if you're a fan of genre cinema. And Zombie Ass, Toilet of the Dead... Um, Donato always loves it when I have to give a plot synopsis for these types of films. So it is a, it is about a young woman who is grieving the death of her sister and she and some friends go camping in the woods 
um, and they stumble across a mad scientist who is unleashed an army of the dead, like you do, like like mad scientists always do, to help uh, actually grow parasites that will protect his daughter who has leukemia. Um, and also they tend to come from outhouses. So that is the that's that's the the brief synopsis of this. There's a lot more than we can go into now. But Ted, it was your pick. Let's start with you. Why this movie? Uh, I, I can't necessarily say why this movie, but um, mm-hmm. I, you know, like God bless it. Like I love the fact that this film exists. I love the fact that this film was made in the past decade. It is absurdity for absurdity's sake. But there is a weird heart behind it. And that heart is Noboru Gucci. It is, it is the director of this film. Noboru Gucci is, I mean, he's a 50-year-old man born and raised in Tokyo. And he's actually a, a good friend of mine. Like, he's he's such an anomaly of, of a human. Like, if, if you ever look up a picture, like, Google Noboru Gucci while listening to this podcast. He looks like if a Cupid doll and the Michelin Man had a baby together. Like, he is the most ridiculous-looking most beautiful, silly little man who I love with all my heart and soul. Um, he he started his career as a porn director. Um, they, they call it AV over there, adult video. And he made all this like really, really quote unquote gross stuff. Like, and he's always been really open about his fetishes, which is a total rarity in Japan. Not to say that Japan doesn't put out lots of really weird, kinky, odd stuff. But it, it is also a culture that is very quiet about what it likes. And Noboru Gucci is the polar opposite of, uh, opposite of that. He is someone who wears his kinks. He wears his love on his sleeve. And he just happens to have a, uh, a deep burning love for girls with stomach aches and lots and lots of intense flatulence. And this movie embraces all of that in the most sweet way you can possibly make a movie that embraces girls with stomach aches and extreme flatulence and it's it's insane it there there's no other word for this thing it is an insane piece of film and how can you not love insane cinema i mean i'm actually really happy you brought this one up because uh, number one like machine girl was kind of my one of my introductions to japanese extreme horror yeah Uh, i remember like in college as i was in my formative horror years the stuff that i gravitated to on netflix happened to be machine girl happened to be everything that that what that door uh, or like that key unlocked the door to so much extreme japanese horror and through that i found dead sushi which I fucking yeah. love. I, I think it might, Dead Sushi might be my favorite uh, Aguchi film. Yeah. And I was so very mad when we created the podcast in the first place. That was one of the films I'm like, we have to cover Dead Sushi. And I went to check it and there's six fucking reviews on it and mine's one of them. And every day I wrestle with taking my review down and making Monogle watch Dead Sushi because it is so brilliant. You know why it, you know why it has those six reviews is because I was its publicist. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, you were. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Yeah. I probably sent you a link. You did. You 100% did because my review was when it released, it when it came out. Yeah. So what I, I'm hearing Ted is both the solution to and the cause of all of our podcast problems. Yep. Your podcast problems, my podcast <laughs> solutions. It's uh, you know, and the thing with the Gucci is like he's 
you know, like I said, you know, he started his career in porn. You know, he made a bunch of crazy enema porn and a bunch of crazy fart porn. This is, and this is something that he does not hide, even as he is hired to direct studio movies in Japan. Clearly, the culture is, is different there because he is able to embrace this insane, weird stuff that he loves. And there's a part of that that I love too. Like, I can't necessarily say I enjoy the film, the uh, the adult films that he's made, but I love that he he's so unabashed. There are so few filmmakers out there who are just like it is. It is like a Rorschach test. Like you look at you look at Aguchi's movies and you're like, that's him. Like that is that is him in its purest form on screen in every film he's ever done. Like Dead Sushi is such a blast. Like I, I lo- that came out the year after Zombie Ass, and like he made a movie called Nui Galumar Z, um, super easy title to remember, and it, it it's about like a sexy schoolgirl who combines herself with a sentient teddy bear to fight crime. Like it's what. <laughs> It's insane. Like, and and look up the pictures from it. It's like, it's like half girl, half teddy bear, like all sewn together. Like she looks like a Frankenstein experiment. Like it, it's amazing. And like, you know, he did Robo Geisha, which became kind of meme happy when it came out because the trailer was so ridiculous, you know, like a geisha who turns into a robot tank. And, but like the, the same year he made zombie ass, the same year he made a movie about diarrhea zombies he directed Tomie Unlimited. Like Tomie is is a Japanese ghost story series, kind of similar to The Ring or The Grudge. In- incredibly popular in Japan. It, it doesn't really hold up as well as those other two series. But like the same year he was making Poop Zombies, he was directing like the latest chapter in this incredibly, incredibly successful series of ghost story movies. So he's all over the map in terms of what he does, but. If Gucci's making a movie, like you bet your ass, I will sign up to see it, whether I whether I like it or not. I'm not a fan of everything he makes, but damn if I'm not a fan of him as a human. I mean, Donato. Shortly before you moved away from New York, we watched one of his first non-porn films, uh, Sukeban Boy, um, which is you know again ridiculous, but it's i love I love how he tries to combine everything he adores into cinema yeah it's that indoctrination of a of what is it Subukaban boy Sukeban boy yeah. right sorry so that that indoctrination of Sukeban boy plus horny house of horrors plus zombie ass toil of the dead in the same night with lots of beer is one of my fondest memories in New York because oh, bless. I, I, I agree with you 100% on Aguchi and everything he puts into a film is weird. It might be kinky. It might be fetishy, but it's also honest. And he's again, so not innocent about it, but he's just so cute in a way and the way he does it. And he's just admitting it. He's like, listen, this is me. This is what I'm doing. And you can either like it or not like it, but I'm going to put myself into every one of these films and I think that really comes out in zombie ass because and it's just such a weird thing to say. Like, yeah, the, yep. his heart really comes out in zombie ass when the uh, tapeworm animals are protruding from rec- uh, rectums. Yep. But like, I don't know. There is a playfulness to everything. And I love the way, especially in like Japanese exploitation cinema, how self-aware all these characters are. And you look at zombie ass and you might have a character who's having to beat away these now like backwards crab walking people with again these rectal protrusions 
And you have a character who's like hitting it with the bat going like, I'm doing it. I'm fighting them. Look at me. And it's so ridiculous. But the self-awareness adds this layer of like, yeah, I don't give a fuck that we're making a movie about zombie asses. Like, this is fun. This is what I want to do. Let's just live in this moment and just have a blast with it. 100%. And I mean, the fact that the main character, like Megumi, uh, Arisa Nakamura's character, um, our, our hero, um, she's on this camping trip because she's trying to get over the death of her sister who was bullied to suicide. Like, it's it's very, like, it, he, and, and Gucci's the first person to be like, you people get bullied and it's horrible. Like, he actually is putting in something he cares about into a movie called Zombie Ass Toilet of the Dead. He's talking about how awful bullying is it uh, of course one can argue is this the right platform to do it in but if it's something you're passionate about if it's something you care about like you absolutely should speak up about those things even in ridiculous exploitation cinema i mean aguchi is somebody who has worn his perversion on his sleeve since he first became a public figure if you don't think that that man has been bullied and has been made fun of like, you're crazy. Like, clearly, there's a lot of him in even that character, you know? Um, it to, to me, across the board, what he does in this movie, like you said, it's, it's sweet, it's saccharine, it has a lot of heart, but it is about huge beer can-sized parasites hanging out of buttholes. Like, it's insane. It's totally insane, and that's why I had to pick it. And that's kind of my favorite part, too, because zombie-ass Toy of the Dead, it sells you the fact that you're going to get zombies who maybe will like asses, and they might come out of toilets, which 100% happens. I mean, there's an entire sequence where we have one of the female characters just trying to go to the bathroom, and that is the first time we meet the quote-unquote shit zombie. And you're just peering down into the, the porthole, we'll call it, of an outhouse, and you see, obviously, mucky water. And feces floating around. And the face, then the face comes up. And you see the face of the shit zombie, who I'll let Ted tell the story of the shit zombie, because there's a lot there. But that moment of, holy fuck, the zombie's really going to come out of the toilet covered in shit, and that's how where this is going to go. And that's only half of it. Then we get to the whole tapeworm thing. Then we get to the whole creature feature aspect of it. And every layer just starts building a top in this just... It's a cornucopia of weirdness that you cannot prepare for. But again, it just full force all in doesn't care what you think. It's not one of those titles that, you know, I, I deal a lot with low, you know, indie horror and like low budget cinema. And you get a title like a Ouija Geist with this like giant monster on the cover. And I think I've talked about the film here as well. And I'm sorry to bring it up again, but it's a perfect example because what you sold me with the Ouija Geist is a giant female demon with multiple arms who comes for you. Like that's on the poster that's on in the title and it never happens in the film. There's not even an Ouija Geist in the entire movie. They don't even use the title zombie ass toil. The dead is like, no, this is exactly what we're giving you. And you know what? We're going to go above and beyond. And the respect I have for films that can do that. It gives it like a whole nother star for me. Uh Like it's, it absolutely delivers on everything it promises and more. And to me, that is the sign of a great exploitation film. Like we think about like, you know, the exploitation legends of the seventies, you know, like the the trailers that are a hundred percent 
not the movie you're getting. Even to this day, like horror and sci-fi films, just like you said, the poster, the trailer, these sort of things, they're sh they show all the good stuff. Well, newsflash, like zombie ass, it the trailer shows exactly what you get, and when you watch the movie, you get a hundred times more of what you see in the trailer. And it's like, it it is 100% what it claims to be, and like, bless it for that. You had uh, you you had mentioned Donata. You'd mentioned the uh, the shit zombie or the 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 poo zombie, as I believe he's listed in the credits. Um, I did, I did. Yeah. I want I want to hear you know the backstory of the poo zombie and who plays it, and I, I want to hear yeah. you tell it because, no. like, no. again, like it was fun doing that night where we hung out and watched horror movies because you were just giving me this running dialogue of all the history behind it, and yeah. it just gave me so much more context. Well, the 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 poo zombie is played by uh, an actor named Demo Tanaka. And uh, Demo uh, has been in several of Noboru Gucci's movies. Uh, that night you and I hung out, we had previously seen him in Sukeban Boy as, as Sukeban Boy's father. Um, and he also, he has a pretty sizable role in um, uh, Machine Girl. Um, and he's, he pops up in stuff all the time. De Demo is a regular face in Japanese exploitation. And, um, you know, for him to play the Pooh zombie in, in Toilet of the Dead, it, it's, it's such a silly cameo for a well-known face that you never really get to see in the movie, given the fact that it's completely covered in wet poop. I'm sure I'm turning so many people off of ever actually watching this movie, but if you can handle it, holy cow, you're in for a treat. Um... And so, so demo does have you know he's got a he's got a small role in the film. Um, he he does make it onto the poster. If you look at the poster for the movie, you'll see demo is the the poo zombie creeping out of the toilet. Um, but also um one of the uh, one of the crab walking zombies um toward the end of Toilet of the Dead um uh, is played by Asami, and uh, Asami is an ex adult film star um who had worked with Aguchi. She plays the Sukeban boy in Sukeban boy. Um, she also is the machine girl's best friend in machine girl. Um, she's, uh, she's, she's like the mother of the, uh, the Tokyo, uh, or the, um, the sushi parlor in, uh, dead sushi. Again, she, she shows up all the time. Amazing, amazing human. So it was kind of fun to see Aguchi's go-to stars in these kind of like, covered with makeup ridiculous roles that if you're a fan you can spot them if you're not what the hell are you looking at it's just some ridiculous characters racing around this ridiculous film but i i love the fact that that uh zombie ass it's it's filled with a lot of his regulars like like uh, yes demos demos the shit zombie asami's the crab walker but like it, it was written by this this guy Jun Tusiga. I, I have so much trouble with his last name. Um, Jun Sugita. There we go. Sugita was the word I was trying to get out of my mouth. Um, Jun Sugita had written like a ton of Aguchi movies, and he continued to write movies for him. I think he actually even wrote Dead Sushi. But um, this the reason I bring him up is it goes full circle to our night, Matt. Um, Jun Sugita he directed Horny House of Horror. Um, so the, the writer of Zombie Ass um, also directed a incredibly silly, amazingly fun exploitation movie 
that came out the year before Zombie Ass called Horny House of Horror, um, starring a bunch of the cast from from Zombie Ass. And it's just about three horny dudes who finish playing softball and they decide to go to a massage parlor, uh, unaware of the fact that it's run by a bunch of crazy, psychopathic cannibal women uh, who don't take any shit from their lame clients. And it is a lot of fun. It's remarkably empowering, um, and it does not it, it it does not like it doesn't mince words in the issues with massage parlors and sex clubs in Japan. Um, it it feels kind of shockingly woke for a movie called Horny House of Horror, um, and I I kind of love how self aware all of these guys are. Um, you know between poop zombies and and crazy sex clubs where people get eaten it it could it so easily could be done in some sort of silly trauma-esque way that doesn't feel like it has the depth that it should have but these movies really do have heart they have heart they have depth they have message and more than anything, like you can see the fingerprint of the people who make these movies all over them. And it's one of the things that I miss so much from modern exploitation cinema, especially Western exploitation cinema, stuff that comes out of the US, stuff that comes out of Europe. It's fun. It's bloody. It's got nudity. It might try to push some buttons. But the the greatest exploitation, the stuff that you know, I grew up on the stuff that hopefully the kids today are are delving deep into, 70s, 80s exploitation. It's so deeply entrenched in heart. It's it's entrenched in message. The whole concept behind exploitation cinema is it's exploiting things that you care about or things that you want to know more about. And you know, like I I can see a styrofoam head get blown up and a bunch of naked boobs anywhere. It is not hard to catch that. You want to impress me? Blow up that styrofoam head, have a hundred naked boobs, but give me something to tie it all together. And again, to, to go full circle, somehow, zombie ass actually does that. It does tie it all back together. I mean... Oh, wait, I was going to say, just Go two ahead. quick little fun facts on that. Uh, number one, Horny House of Horrors only has zero Rotten Tomatoes reviews. So uh, I'm already there thinking of a sequel episode with Mr. Gagan. <laughs> Done. Uh, number two, though, everything you said about exploitation is actually hilarious because I was going to go into that same idea if if you cut off earlier, but there was no reason to cut you off there uh, because exploitation gets a bad rap. Like that's that's the whole thing is people think exploitation is just like tits and ass, gore, crazy effects and mindless. I think the thing that gets misconstrued about what makes a good exploitation film a good exploitation film is there is a message and a reason for all this absurdity, there's a reason you're pushing us to the brink. And it's to honestly use a method of getting your point across that sticks. And maybe that involves a lot of violence. And maybe that involves a lot of things that people aren't, you know, accepting of immediately. But again, there's a reason. There's a reason that it's hard to see this stuff sometimes. And maybe that's because the message itself is hard to swallow. But just as you alluded to, Number one, people just immediately see exploitation just for the visceral level of uh, gore. They see it just for the physical, and it's just like, it's just, again, mindless brutality. 
And the bad ones are. That's the thing. A bad exploitation film is just mindless brutality for the sake of a body count. But a good exploitation film, and I, I think, uh, you know, honestly, international films get this a lot or get this right a lot more than Western films because Western films have unfortunately gone the route of just being gore for the sake of gore where, you know, Japanese cinema, I keep gravitating to these things as ridiculous as dead sushi and zombie ass, but there's actual thematic depth and heft. And sure, maybe the lead character finds herself and her strength in her farts, but that still says a hell of a lot more than a lot of exploitation films I've seen. A hundred percent. And and yes, she absolutely does find herself in her farts. And early on in the movie, we we deal with how embarrassing it is to to accidentally rip a fart in front of your friends. Something that's incredibly natural and everyone totally does it, but God forbid you do it in front of people and they mock you and you suddenly get a horrible nickname and all of these things. And they tie that into the movie. Like, like it's not farts for farts sake. As, as insane as this entire conversation is, this is the chat I wanted to have about this movie. Is that all of these things are, are real things. I mean, well, maybe not the giant parasitic glowworms that hang out your butthole and allow you to fly. But a lot of the other stuff is, it, it's real. It, it, it has heart. And, you know, to echo what you just said about exploitation cinema... Look at look at some of the big, the big sub. I don't know if you want to call them a subgenre of exploitation, like black exploitation or nun exploitation or God forbid Nazi exploitation sort of cinema. The, these were, of course, these movies were meant to rile you up. They were meant to upset you. They were meant to shock you. But if you don't think that black exploitation cinema had an agenda, like you're insane. Those movies were the first opportunity for a lot of classically trained black actors to have leading roles in cinema, regardless of how exploitative it was. Nunsploitation cinema? Like, not only does it, not only does it occasionally, like, embrace the fact that it's really hard to actually devote your life to chastity and devote your life to something that you might not fully believe in, but it also, it, it addresses a lot of the underlying issues with organized religion or like I said, Nazi exploitation stuff. If, if you've ever seen a Nazi exploitation movie, the Nazis are never the good guys in those movies. They're exploiting how horrible these people were. And while it regularly was tasteless, it always was trying to say something. Even if that something it was trying to say was as simple as, Nazis are bad. A message that we should be echoing to this day. I wish there was more Nazi exploitation cinema in 2020 to remind people Nazis are bad. But you, that actually raises a, a question that I want to pose to the both of you because talking about Iguchi's films and kind of the niche he occupies in Japan, the idea that there's this place for exploitation where he can be both heartfelt and intelligent and you know still give the audiences what they want without condemning all exploitation cinema. You know, I think one of the things that, that we've talked about here is how 60s and 70s and 80s exploitation cinema served as a corrective, either to an issue of representation or to the finances and consolidation of Hollywood. It seems, again, going to speak in super general terms, it seems now that what we look at as Western exploitation cinema is more nostalgia or the idea of 
replicating the bits from exploitation cinema that had something to say, you know, for entertainment value. I think of stuff like all the asylum films, of course. I think about movies like Things Killing, and I've talked to those guys. I've interviewed those guys. I actually love The Headhunter more than life itself, and I think they do really good work. But a lot of Western cinema that falls in that exploitation doesn't have the same kind of corrective element to it. So I guess kind of my broader question here is what do you think successful contemporary current successful exploitation cinema in the United States and Canada, what could that look like? And do you think there are people that are providing an American equivalent of zombie ass, the toilet of the dead? Yeah. There like providing the American equivalent. Um, Matt, do you want to dive into this? I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So I, I mean, I'm on the spot and I'm trying to think right now because obviously I watch a lot of the weird, a lot of the wild Mm -hmm. and you know, people immediately think of trauma and Ted brought trauma up before. And I, this is not me saying I don't like trauma films. I, I do like trauma films. I think Poultrygeist is oddly enough, a very well done uh, eco horror exploitation film. It has song. Heart. Exactly. It, it's through song. It's through a fast food company that basically people start turning into poultry zombies. And to me, that's well done exploitation because it does have that heart. But then you look at some other stuff that Troma does. And, you know, unfortunately for me, it misses the mark because they go back to the methodology. And I think so here's I, maybe this isn't answering your question fully, but I think the issue with a lot of Western adaptations of exploitation is kind of the idea that we take something that works and we just base value, try to replicate it. We don't want to dissect it and we don't want to know why it works. We just know the general talking points. And we just, and I say we as like Western cinema, um, we just want to make that happen again and be successful. The problem with that is, let's take a look at torture porn. Like torture porn grew out of Saw. The first Saw, while incredibly gory, is also a pl- like a police procedural. It's a detective film as much as it is a, a a torture film. And there's mystery and there's there's actually a script and there's something more than just let's torture people on camera. But what that single film did with the help of Hostel and a few others was spawn a subgenre of replicators who just saw the gore element and said, "Oh, well that's what that's all we need. All we need to do is do some crazy kills on camera." And yeah, we've got a, we've got a saw film on our hands, and I think that translates exactly to exploitation, as I said before, because people look back nostalgically on exploitation, and maybe early trauma fits in that, and they look back on the old stuff, and what they just want to do is say, oh, we just need to be as crazy and wild as possible. Let's just get some naked people for naked people's sake. Let's just do that for that sake, and it, it's a failure because you're missing the actual idea and the actual heart of an exploitation film, and that's. That's why a lot fail. And I, I'm thinking off the top of my head, I mean, I think, I don't know if I mentioned uh, Mutant Blast on this podcast yet, but that's the that's the most recent film that comes to my mind where it might not have the point and the heft of zombie ass. And again, I can't believe I just said that, but it still hits the exploitation angle of going balls out and making a midnighter that doesn't care what you think. It's going to give you a scene where a talking lobster in a business suit fights against a dolphin with a samurai sword, and it's like a Kurosawa ripoff. Mm-hmm. You know what? Like, it finds its heart, it finds its way. And a film like Mutant Blast, while it might not have a finding strength message or a 
reclamation message, it still is an exploitation film that understands it's a love of cinema. It, it actually loves what it's doing and it's not trying to replicate. It's making its own path. It's making its own exploitation film and saying, you know what? We're just going to have fun. We're going to do things our way. We're not trying to imitate, but at the same time, we do want to bring you back to that feeling. And that's, that's the sweet spot for me. Yeah, I, I would, I would totally agree. It's it for me, the, the simplest term I can use um, is it, it just has to have heart and whether that heart is something you believe in or something you just want other people to believe in that you might not fully believe in yourself, whether it's wearing your kinks on your sleeve for the whole world to see and judge or whether it's just like, I just want to have fun and I want it to feel like I want it to be beloved. Um, there's that too, you know, like, honestly, I, I don't feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of exploitation cinema coming out of the U S right now or Western culture in general that does have a lot of heart um, off the top of my head. I mean, I, I regularly click on Amazon prime to see what I can find. And I watch five minutes of it and I'm like, absolutely not. Like no way am I doing this? I, I think the last one that I, I watched all of, was the Velocipastor, um, which doesn't have any moral message to it, but I had fun with it because I, I got what they were trying to do. And there was a charm behind the attempt. And to me, I want more attempts. I want more people trying their best to make something that is charming and sweet and needed in this world right now. Like we... As I said earlier, this whole planet's on fire. Like, make things that will let people escape from all of this. Like, tell your message. Like, please, especially if you're on the right side of history, tell your message. Like, like put it in everything you do. Like, scream from the rafters about how important the things you care about are. But if you want to, like, couch the things that you love in parasitic butthole monsters go for it like that's that's what exploitation is there for like it, it's it's not fun to watch a political agenda just laid out on film you know what is fun dawn of the dead like a movie that is 100 socio-political agenda but holy shit is it a joy to watch I want more. But Ted, I don't like politics in my horror. Yeah, right? Right? <laughs> oh, well, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and we all should more, you know what? Yeah, it's, you know, it because politics has become this boogeyman. I mean, it's more of a boogeyman than Michael Myers anymore. And the fact that we can share our socio-economic political beliefs through art, through not just horror, through sci-fi, through comedy, through whatever we want to do, whatever genre lens allows us to share that stuff. It is a blessing to filmmakers to have that voice. And I sincerely believe it is their duty as artists to share that. And every time I hear somebody tell a celebrity shut up, you're just a celebrity. Like, no, that is the one thing 
that celebrity is good for. It has given people a voice. Like, cool, you've got a voice. You've got a billion followers on TikTok or whatever the fuck that is. Like, cool, great. Now use it. And I don't. And I'm not saying use it for good. Use it for what you believe in, and hopefully that's good. And to me, like end of the day, that's why that's why I constantly have people follow me on Twitter and then unfollow me because they see how political I get. And I'm like, yo, it's it's a package deal, man. Like, like, yes, we can absolutely talk about horror, we can talk about exploitation, we can talk about parasitic butthole monsters all you want. But at the end of the day, it is important to acknowledge the fact that Naboru Aguchi made a movie about his own kinks that he likely has been shamed for for his entire life, and he made it without any embarrassment, at least I'd like to believe, without any embarrassment. He made something that I like to believe he is proud of, and it might make people laugh, it might make people roll their eyes, but we have had a 40-minute conversation about it, and that's the important thing. We're talking about it, and it's alive. It exists. And eight years later, zom- 11, what are nine years, however many, God knows how many years it's been. Uh, uh, this, years don't matter anymore. Time this, isn't Yeah, thing. this year's been like 50 years. So 50 years later, we're still talking about this movie, not because it's about diarrhea zombies and parasitic butthole monsters, but we're talking about this movie because it has heart. It's just not the sort of heart you expect it to have. Yeah, and, and I mean, like, a little disclaimer to those who may seek out zombie ass after this. Like, it definitely leans into Japanese culture very much. Like, the whole shame angle is something that's played, you know, between Danny of the Kaitens keeps vomiting and he's very ashamed of that. And it's a film about bottling all that stuff. So you're going to see some things that might not translate 100%. Um, there's an egregiously long groping scene when the girl's in the toilet and trying to like do her business and the zombie uh the shit zombie or poo zombie is reaching up just slapping her ass over and over again but you know that's in japanese culture that kind of stuff it it translates much better so like i think there's we always talk about like international cinema on when we have these conversations on certified forgotten because we forget that other cultures have different views, we'll say, and they have different, you know, ways of showing things. And, you know, if something's foreign to you, that doesn't mean it's still relevant. And, you know, it's something that you shouldn't turn off immediately, I think, is important to remember. I, I would agree. And I, I, and I, I thank you for saying that because I get so caught up in how accepting I am of some of these cultural differences that it, it absolutely bears noting this is not a poignant film. It is not. And for all the passion that I might have for it, th- this is not a masterpiece. It is It is silly exploitation garbage. And I use the word garbage with more love than I use the word masterpiece. Do we do our whole, uh, why was it... <laughs> forgotten or is that an easier easier no i think no because we talked i think we talked a little bit about that um i i think you guys encapsulated kind of that too when you talked about um the reception here and talking about how his films are played at festivals and things like that so it's not an easily digestible concept mm -hmm. or film and to me that's why it has been forgotten yeah and the title i mean the title is what the title is probably a lot of the times with films like this, the title 
will only appeal to an audience who might not, at the end of the day, be the right audience for it entirely, Agreed. if that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, we're talking about a film that played Fantastic Fest and has zero Rotten Tomatoes reviews. It's, and for, for the when it came out, so 2011, I mean, plenty of people could have written about it and nobody did. So I think that alone speaks to exactly what you're saying, Monogal. I, I, will I will say, say that there are a few reviews online. Uh, no, sorry, Ted. There, there are a few reviews online that didn't work their way into uh, Rotten Tomatoes. And a lot of times we talk about the fact that there aren't uh, mainstream reviews of a film. The flip side of that, the thing that I think I love even more than when a film doesn't get a lot of reviews is when one of the big trades covers a film because it's premiering and they have to sort of write about it. So all I'm going to say with regards to that is Variety did review Zombie Ass Toilet of the Dead. I would encourage you to go seek out that review and see... Um, just how mismatched that publication is with what they watched. That's that's all I'm going to say. Well said. All right. Well, that is that. That was there's a lot more in that episode than I anticipated there would be, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised because that's kind of how these conversations go on Certified Forgotten. Um, but Ted, I know that you know you have a lot of different things that you're working on right now, and I know that people probably, if they haven't already, want to attend. Your horror trivia nights, um, they might be interested in checking out your podcast. So please take this as an opportunity to kind of promote the stuff that you're working on. What do you have What do you have for audiences if they want to connect with you and follow your work? Um, I'm very easily accessible on social media. You can always find me on Twitter or Instagram. It's just Ted Gagan, uh, easier said than spelled. Um, but Ted, G-E-O-G-H-E-G-A-N. Um, I do host a uh, radio show called This Is Not A Story About that has kind of uh, been born out of quarantine. Um, it was an attempt to get over my aversion to my own voice. Um, and also the reason why I agreed to uh, do your podcast today is because I'm trying to get over my hatred of my own voice. Thank you, um, thank you. And uh, so it is, um, It is the. there are five episodes of it available basically anywhere you listen to podcasts. And um, it is a deeply, deeply researched but incredibly passionate deep dive into forgotten stories about cinema history and um as long as this quarantine keeps up um myself and uh one of my best pals mr michael gingold we host a virtual horror trivia event um every single friday at 7 p.m pacific 10 p.m eastern um and you can find out more about that on twitter uh with and it is at final exam trivia and uh, there's all sorts of details there awesome a lot of different options there if you want to check them out um donato do you want to promote yourself a little bit too as we do as always you can find me at donato bomb on twitter instagram and letterboxd and at this point i don't know where i'll be writing so i will just tweet those things out and let you know where i end up with uh whoever's got budgets these days <laughs> As for myself, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Uh, I tend to show up in the playlist, Austin Chronicle, a couple other places sometimes. So if I if I write it, I'll share it. And you can, of course, listen to this podcast, Certified Forgotten, on Apple Podcasts. You can listen to it on Spotify, a couple other places. And we would encourage you, if you're enjoying what you're listening to, to leave a review. It lets us know that we're on the right path, that we're talking about the types of movies and bringing on the types of guests that you, our listeners, would like to hear. There, I just slipped into my NPR voice a little bit at the end. I know you're a big fan, Donato. I can't take it away from you. Listen, man, you've got that Alaskan radio voice that I cannot fault.
That's true. RIP Matt the Movies 2010 to 2011. Uh, Ted, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I'm glad that we can, I'm glad you came and talked to us and shared all the information, but I'm glad we can be part of your podcasting journey too. I think you're going to, I think you have a lot to offer. I, we're not the last, not yours podcast you're going to appear on in the next couple of months. I have a feeling. We'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I'm, uh, I'm <laughs> fingers are crossed that I can share in more opportunities like this. I do feel like this is not a story about may ultimately become a, uh, a podcast that exists only during quarantine, only because of the ridiculous amount of research that has to go into it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if anybody from NPR is listening, um, yeah, check, check out the podcast and hire, hire me and these guys and uh, we'll make something magic for you. If you want if, to get I was on say, the if ground floor, you must is... remember this. Come on, man. This is, this is where you do it. You're like, you want your own in-house. You must remember this. Ted's right here. Right here. Also, if anyone from NPR is listening to this episode of Certified Forgotten about Zombie Ass, I would like to know your thoughts about this movie. Amen. Well, it is that time. Uh, Donato, if you'll do the honors, please. Demon Wind.